You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. This winter, there was a bright light coming right at me on the Burke Gilman Trail. It was dark. I was on my bike early morning heading for a meeting. And uh, this light was too low to be a jogger. And it was wagging too much to be a bicyclist. And I couldn't figure out what it was. Kept getting closer and closer. As I closed the distance, I realized someone had put a headlamp on a dog. <laughs> with a dog on the Vert Gilman Trail. And it wasn't until I was just about passed him that I realized his master was there too, jogging behind him invisibly. And I got thinking about our dogs and how we love our dogs in Seattle. And as we begin a series here about being a servant, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is our dogs. They teach us something really important, I think, about being a servant. Someone said, the more people I meet, the more I like my dog. You know, and I can come back from work having had a real hard day, even having been a jerk. And, you know, the dog just gives me that unconditional love, climbs right up into my lap, licks my face, and it's all okay. And I sometimes think my dog's maybe a better Christian than I am. I don't, I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but uh, uh, Mark Twain said, My father was a St. Bernard, my mother was a collie, but I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> you kind of hear the disappointment in his voice there. Well, I think Jesus would say we should be more like our dogs. The way he puts it is this, uh, Mark 10:43. Whoever wishes to become great among you must become your servant. I think what he's saying is that the greatness of life is found in serving. But I think what he's saying is that you can connect to the nobility of your life when you become a servant. This Lent, that's what we're all about. Becoming better servants. How can we love our world the way God and Jesus Christ loves our world? And Isaiah is going to be our guide. Isaiah, you know Isaiah, he's a great prophet in the 8th century. Why Isaiah? Because you read his writings, the major character that emerges in the book of Isaiah is somebody that he refers to rather cryptically as the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. And scholars have noted several passages in Isaiah um, almost seem like songs. They call them the servant songs. They're beautiful pieces of scripture that have shaped so much uh, of um, those who are faithful and wanting to walk with God. So we'll be looking at the songs of the servant together. We'll be uh, investigating who exactly is the servant of the Lord. Sometimes it's hard to figure out. Sometimes it seems like the servant is Isaiah himself, the prophet. Sometimes it seems like the servant is Israel, the nation. Sometimes it's a community. Sometimes it's an individual. But the followers of Jesus Christ have concluded that through all of that, it all points to Jesus, the one who came not to be served, but to serve Jesus, the great servant of heaven who's walked among us. I want to begin today by starting with motivation. Because let's be honest, no matter how noble it is to be a servant, it's also very hard. Best definition I found of being a servant comes from Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, where the Apostle Paul says, Do not merely look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. And so a servant is somebody who puts the interests of others ahead of their own interests. And you know what? That's hard. 
I'm really interested in my interests. And if I have some energy at the end of the day after I fulfilled my interests, I might give some attention to your interests, but to put your interests ahead of my own. Now that's hard. And we find that usually it's hardest to be a servant when there is a conflict with our interests. You know what? If you want to serve your roommate and help her with calculus, it's inevitably going to be late at night when you've got a lot of your own work to do and you're under stress. If you want to serve at work and be a part of a team and a good colleague, then inevitably it means you won't get your way. It means that uh, sometimes you'll absorb some of the blame and you'll almost never get the credit. If you want to be a servant in your family and there's a child who has need, inevitably it will conflict with your need for sleep and you'll be exhausted in the middle of the night trying to care for someone who's vulnerable. Being a servant means we find ourselves oftentimes doing jobs we really don't enjoy doing and giving more of ourselves than we feel we can afford to give. So it's hard. So the question is motivation. And that's, that's what we're going to focus today, motivation. Who would want to be a servant? Where does that come from? Well, we're going to begin where Isaiah began with his call because I think he finds motivation here in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Would you open up your Bible to Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8? And turn, please, to page 553 there. And before we read this together, I just want to tell you, this, this is a vision that God gives Isaiah. It's like a dream. I don't really know how it happened, but he sees uh, some creatures there called seraphs. Just as a matter of interest, this is the only place that seraphs show up in the whole Bible, Isaiah 6. And the word seraph means burning, ignited, lit. And maybe that's because they're reflecting God's glory, so they're bright. But it also may be that these servants who are attendants at the throne of God are burning with motivation to serve. So if you're able, let's stand and read this passage together. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. I want you to notice today the, uh, the coal of God's grace and the fire of service. 
But before we look at those two things, let's get back to our furry friends' dogs. I'm going to show you a video. Most of you have seen this video. Uh, if you're uh, listening online, you want to see the video, just Google uh, Denver the Guilty Dog. Even the dog that doesn't do anything is made to feel guilty in that video, right? I hope you're happy too. You let this happen. Well, look, the face says it all, doesn't it? That's what I love about that. The face says it all. You look, the eyes, the mouth. And here's why I show you that video today. I, I, want, I want to give you a little assessment. Because I think all of us have one of two theologies. We either have good dog theology or bad dog theology. And uh, you can tell by the way you interpret this story, the way you read the story that we just uh, read together. And I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to use your imagination. <clears throat> what do you see on Isaiah's face? What, what, his eyes, his mouth in this scene, okay? Because be very clear, something similar to this. The master has called him into the room, and one of his attendants, a servant, has taken a, a coal, put the evidence in his face. And what do you see there? What's the look on his expression? Well, you can use your imagination, but you can also refer to the text. And I want to spend a little bit of time seeing what the text says about what's happening inside of Isaiah. Isaiah will speak twice in this passage. And the first time he speaks in verse 5, it sounds like bad dog theology. It sounds like he's standing in fear. And that's what bad dog theology is, by the way. It's when you stand in fear. Because see what he says there, verse 5. Woe is me, I'm lost from a man of unclean lips. And I, love, I live among a people of unclean lips. So I ask myself, what's with the mouth, the lips? What's the, why the mouth, uh, Isaiah? Well, I think two reasons. Uh, one is it's his servant role. Okay, he's a prophet. This is the way a prophet serves is with his lips. And so to say I'm a man of unclean lips is to suddenly say I think I'm not qualified. Uh, for what God is calling me to do, his servant role. But also I think it has more importantly to do with his servant soul. Because I think in this moment, Isaiah wants to be drawn into the worship that he sees the other servants engaged in. These seraph who are saying, holy, holy, holy. It's a superlative in Hebrew. And I think in this moment, the revelation God gives him is so compelling. It's so beautiful. It's like that moment where you're just choked up with tears and everything beautiful is welling up inside of Isaiah. And he just wants to say, this is, this is pure justice. This is pure goodness. This is pure righteousness. This is pure beauty and inspiration. And he just wants to say, holy, 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 but he can't do it. Because he knows himself. He knows his life. If you want to understand the problem in the book of Isaiah, like many authors, Isaiah sets it up in the first chapter, right there in the very beginning, where God says, you know, my people, they don't know me. They worship me, but they don't really know me. They think they know me, but they don't really know me. And God's saying, essentially, I'm so tired of that. I'm so tired of their spectacular festivals. I'm so tired of all their rich sacrifices. I'm so tired of all their persistent prayers because, you know what? They don't really know who I am. As evidence of that, they uh, live with a lot of injustice they look the other way around oppression. They don't plead for the widow. They don't defend the orphan. Um, 
And Isaiah's there at this moment going, you know, I used to think I was the good guy in this story, but all of a sudden I realized I'm just like everybody else in Israel. I don't think I know this God. My life is proof. I've just made a mess of my life. You know, I'm a smudge on the carpet that the dog left. That's me. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He says, bad dog. And you can just hear him. You know, I don't know if you could hear that. It's like, Isaiah, did you do this? Did you do this? You know, it's that thing's in front of his eyes. The seraph's got that coal right there. Did you do this? His mouth is... He's saying, oh, no, this is judgment. He's pronouncing judgment on himself. Woe is me. I'm under condemnation. And you know what? Uh, God doesn't deny that. But this is not about self-esteem so much as this is an existential crisis. There is a mess in his life, a mess in all of our lives. It's called sin. It's not just a, a, a hobby or an avocation or a habit or something we do. It's the condition of our souls. And there's nothing we can do about it. So it's very uncomfortable to look at our lives and go, did I do that? Did I? I'm so disappointed. Right? But here's the question. Do you think that God brought Isaiah into that room, that vision, just to make him stand in fear? Just so that Isaiah could have his mess rubbed in his nose. If you do, then you believe in bad dog theology. And a lot of us do today. I was listening to um, Craig Barnes actually reading. He was uh, talking about, he's the president of Princeton Seminary. And they have two guide dogs, service animals, at Princeton Seminary this year. And every Monday when he preaches the chapel service, these two dogs are brought into the chapel. And they tend to sit, he notices, facing the pulpit like they're listening. And he wonders what the dogs will make of his sermon and uh, as he's thinking about this, here's, here's what he writes. He says, I'm struck by how many preachers keep finding ways to give the bad dog sermon. In both conservative and progressive congregations, the pastor stands in the pulpit and scolds the world for being a mess and the congregation for allowing this mess to continue. Sometimes the scolding is about the mess they've made of their own lives or the mess they left in the church. Bad dog, the preacher barks. Take that outside. What is even more amazing is how many good people are addicted to the bad dog sermon. They sit in the pews looking like guilty puppies thinking, you're right, I haven't been good enough. I'll be back next week to hear this again. (laughs) See, and I think a lot of us have ingrained bad dog theology in our lives. And the question is, is that really God or is that your inner critic? Oftentimes, we like to make God in our image, and the way we talk to ourselves all the time is bad dog. And so, of course, God would say that if he were ever to come into the room and and meet us face to face. Those would be his first words, bad dog, uh, we think. And we stand in fear. But I want to suggest to you that that's not what's going on in this passage. It's not at all like that video that we just watched. Here's another way of asking it. In your mind, is the problem in this text that Isaiah is in trouble, or A, or is it that Isaiah thinks he's in trouble, but he doesn't know that he's not, B? If you sort of feel like it's A, but you're trying to get yourself to B, then you're trying to find good dog theology, and that's the gift that God has brought Isaiah into this vision to give. I believe he wants us to receive it as well. So good dog theology means you're standing in grace. Bad dog theology has you standing in fear, but good dog theology has you standing in grace. Notice what, what, what response there is to this 
uh, declaration of his sinfulness in verse 5. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed. Your guilt has departed. Your guilt has departed. And your sin has been blotted out. It's been covered. That's the message. He's there to hear. Think about this room, this scene. There are two pieces of furniture in this, in this dream. What are they? There's a throne, first of all, right? It's high and lifted up. And what's, what, is that, what does that mean, a throne? It means that God is king, and God gets to make the decision. Not you, but God gets to make the decision about you. What's the other piece of furniture? An altar. And, and what does that mean? It means that God's decision about you is forgiveness. God has forgiven you. That's what an altar means. And so the reason this seraph immediately responds to Isaiah is he knows he's got it all wrong. He grabs a coal and he takes it from the altar, the place of sacrifice, the place where God made a decision to punish a substitutionary sacrifice instead of to punish you. In essence, although Isaiah couldn't know it at this time, this altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the coal that he takes is like a splinter from the wood of the cross or a cup and bread from the table. So I want to take this and put it on your mouth, that very place that you're talking about, so that you know you don't stand in fear. You have nothing to fear. As long as you're with God, you stand in grace. Good dog. Your guilt has been covered, removed. Your sin has been covered. Now, it doesn't mean he won't do bad dog things. He, won't, he, he will. He's not transformed. It's just that he's informed that this is the way God sees him for the rest of his life. And so that coal is evidence. It's not so much evidence of what he's done wrong. It's evidence of what God is doing right in his life. And the mouth is important not because of what Isaiah does with it, but because of what God does with it in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think this is why God has brought him here. Because I think he's been standing in a whole lot of fear in his life before this moment. God wants him to stand in grace. I want them to know who he really is. And the same is true for you and for me. I mean, the mess that I've made of my life, the mess I made last night, the mess I've made in my marriage, the mess I've made with my kids, the mess I've made in my work, the mess I will make, all of this has been burnt on the altar of God's love. And that's a one-time thing that has happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. I constantly need to be reminded of who I really am and what God has done for me in Christ. You're loved. That's, God has brought him into this room because he wants him to be with him. That's what the smoke and the fire, they're always signs of God's presence and comfort. And Isaiah, I'm with you, I'm for you. You are loved. You are welcome. You are invited. There's a place for you in my heart. There's a place for you in the family of God. That's what you need to hear when you come to church. That's what you need to tell yourself every day of your life. That's the good news. So I said we're talking about motivation, but we really need to get this right because it's going to start with where you stand. If you stand in fear, motivation is going to be fear. If you stand in grace, your motivation is going to be grace, and it makes all the difference in the world. 
The motivation to become a servant is grace. The coal of grace becomes the fire of service that begins to burn inside of Isaiah's heart. And notice the next time, the second time he talks, he's overhearing this commission where the Lord is speaking to his heavenly court, all these fiery attendants, all these servants around him. He says, who shall I send? And Isaiah, the one who was just a moment ago terrified, says, hey, would it be appropriate to send me? Here I am, send me. I'm here and I'm ready to go. That's a change. Now he's got new motivation. There's a spark in his life, and it's a spark of service. Let me put it to you this way. Think about a dog's tail. Uh, my wife said something really bizarre this week. Uh, it was Thursday night. She was on the floor with our dog, scratching behind the ears, and I overheard her say, Olivia, you have no idea how lucky you are. You have a tail. My wife is jealous of the dog, and because the dog has a tail, the tail gets stepped on, the tail bangs into things, but she says, why? And I thought about, what's she saying? What, what is she saying? And I, haven't, I should probably ask her, but I, my, I, what I think she was saying, <laughs> what I think she meant by that is, you're lucky you have a way of expressing joy and gratitude. You know? When your tail wags, I know you're happy, and I love that. No, we love about a dog. He signals, signals happiness. And you know what? For a Christian, for a follower of Jesus Christ, service is the way we show joy. It's a response to grace. We don't have a tail, but we can serve. And the tail tells the story. I mean, poor Denver, you know. Where's the tail? Between the legs. You know, I'm very disappointed with you, Denver. Well, it's time to go to the penalty box. You know, and there he goes. But a happy dog, a joyful dog, a dog that's not living with fear, wags that tail and will do a whole lot for you. When you stand in grace, you'll go as a servant. John Calvin talks about the difference between evangelical repentance and legal repentance. It's a very important distinction. Legal repentance is changing your life because you want to be accepted by God. It's motivated by fear. I'm going to be a better person so that maybe God will accept me. And a lot of us are motivated to serve in just that way. Maybe I'll serve more because I think that's what God wants, and maybe someday he'll be happy with me. Legal repentance. Calvin said, but evangelical repentance is very, very different. There, first you're accepted, and then you seek to change your life. You see, it's a response. It's a joyful response. It's a grateful response to God's grace. Wow, look at how God has served me in Jesus Christ. He totally got me in his care. Now I am free to reflect that in the lives of other people and to serve other people. Evangelical repentance. It's important because if you're going to be motivated by fear, in order to stay motivated, you have to keep staying afraid. If you're going to be motivated by grace, in order to stay motivated, you have to keep hearing the gospel. Good dog. Good dog. Fear will work as a motivator. Sadly, many of us have discovered that. But it doesn't last for very long. It's not very effective. Two problems with fear is it's exhausting and it's undermining. It's exhausting. Uh, this week I was on my bike riding down East Lake, south towards downtown. And you know there's a kind of a merge there after you go across the bridge. And, and uh, I was um, anticipating this merge when I realized this was, there was a, one of those double buses coming up but from behind. I could hear it. And I thought, pedal faster, George, uh, because I could see a row of cars coming up. And it was going to be very, very narrow. And so I had to move my bike kind of into the center of the lane. I look over my shoulder and the bus is getting closer. And I actually had this memory of seeing that huge bike rack that's on the front of the things and this is odd but this is really what went through my mind I thought you know I've never gone around to that watching that video that shows how you're supposed to put your bike on the front of the <laughs> bus 
<laughs> but as I could hear that roar getting louder and louder, I thought, you know what? I think I'm just about to find out how the bike gets on the front of the bus. <laughs> you know, I, I was motivated. I was pedaling pretty fast at that point, but it was because of fear. And it was exhausting. And many of us are exhausted in life because so much of our life is motivated by fear. Ask the people in the gym. If they're honest with you, they'll say, I just want to look a little bit better because I want to, I'm afraid people won't accept me. Uh, we're motivated by fear to get uh, in our scholarship, by the grades or in our work to f- somehow create security in our lives. But it's exhausting. The other thing about fear motivation is it's undermining. It, it undermines it because the more afraid you are, the more focused you are on yourself. The more committed you tend to get to your own interests, not the interests of others. See, so it gets harder to serve people when you're motivated by fear. You become defensive, we become withdrawn, we become protective, we, we hide. When you stand in grace, you'll go as a servant. And that makes sense because really service is grace in action. I'll tell you a story. A physician was making a house call. He was visiting a uh, low-income apartment complex. He pulled his car up to the curb. When he got out, he saw there was a boy there playing with a ball on the sidewalk. And the boy immediately addressed him. He said, wow, mister, is that your car? It was a shiny new car. And he said, yes. And he said, "Um, where'd you get that car? And uh, the physician paused for a moment. It's kind of an awkward thing to try to explain. His, his brother owned a car dealership, and they exchanged cars for medical services. He was just about to get into that when he said, well, my, my brother gave it to me. And the boy interrupted and said, your brother gave you that car? And he said, hey, mister, wait a minute. Would you stay right here for a second? And before the physician had a chance to respond, this kid had run around the block. He was out, out around the corner. He was out of view. And the doctor said to himself, you know what? I got a visit here. I'm running, I'm running behind schedule. I don't have much time. He didn't know what to do he waited a couple of clicks and this boy came back three minutes later he was pulling a wagon and in the wagon there was an even younger boy whose legs were withered and the first boy pulled the wagon over right up next to the car so his little brother could see the car and he said to him joey do you see that car that shiny nice car his brother gave him that car joey I promise you that when we get older, that's the kind of brother I'm going to be to you. And the physician so remembered that encounter years ago that it shaped his whole experience of God and life. Here's what he said. God has used that experience in my life. Every time I have a decision to make with my practice, my family, my friends, or with anything, I keep saying, God, that little boy pulling the wagon, that's the kind of brother. I want to be a servant. So that's your assignment this week. And the specific practice that I think Isaiah offers us is go. Which is to say, just know that you're sent to exactly where you are. There are two parts to this. First of all, A, you got to get out of the kennel. Get yourself out of the kennel, would you? Stand in grace. Every time you feel afraid this week, just stop right there and say, I'm I'm not going to stand in fear anymore. I'm going to stand in grace. I know what Jesus Christ has done for me. Spend some time with that. And then the second part of it is to, and you'll pardon the expression, sniff the neighborhood. Because this is true about our dogs is that they're very territorial, isn't it? They know where they're assigned. 
And I want you to know where you're assigned as well, to think about your network, your neighborhood, and offer Isaiah's prayer. It's good enough for him. It's good enough for us. Here I am. Here I am. I'm here, Lord. Send me. I'm available. So take a couple minutes, wherever you are next, let's say tomorrow, at work or school or wherever you are, just ask God, say that prayer. God, I'm here. Send me. Would you give me someone to serve today and a way to serve uh, that person? And then just listen. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Here I am at this school, in this home, in this family, at this workplace. Here I am. Send me. Let's go. Well, I want to go back finally to the Burke Gilman Trail and that light that I saw on that dog. It made a deep impression on me, and I know it's odd. Maybe I was sleep deprived, but as soon as I got by that dog, tears started to come to my eyes. Because that day was a busy day for me. I, I was going to an early morning meeting, and I was stressed with all the work that I had, and I, and I was kind of overwhelmed with that. I think I was in fear. When I saw that dog, it reoriented me. All of a sudden, I imagined that this is how that dog's morning began. And I just make this up, but I imagine that that dog has sat by the door morning after morning and seen his master go off for his runs. I imagine that dog has seen his master take his headlamp and put it on his head and head out for the jog in the darkness. But for some reason, I imagine that this morning, when that master came to the door, he took his headlamp, instead of putting it on his own head, he put it on the dog's head. And that dog thought, I am going to wear my master's light today. What a privilege. I can't imagine anything greater than to wear my master's light today. And I'm going to run before my master. And the people on the trail, they're not going to see him, but they're going to see me because I'm carrying the master's light. And I thought to myself, I don't want anything more than that today for myself. And the truth is, I don't want anything more than that for you today as well. Let's pray. Gracious God, you've come for us in Jesus Christ to serve us and to unleash us on the world as your agents of change. So just as we've been served, may we also serve. What a privilege it is to carry the light of Christ in our lives. And we pray that people will look at us and not see us, but look up and see our King high and lifted up. In his name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.